you're listening to the Voice of Insurance podcast, produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. I last spoke to today's guests as part of last year's The State of Reinsurance special episode from Monte Carlo. In that documentary-style podcast, I spoke to over 20 people. So a one-on-one with this duo to look more closely at their still relatively young business was long overdue. Tim Gardner and Bob Bissett of Lockton Re have been very busy in the last four years since the project to build a challenger reinsurance broker began in earnest. The business has hired over 300 staff, run through 200 million in revenues and became profitable last year. And in this episode, we check in on how the reinsurance broker's expansion plans are progressing. We also take the temperature on this still relatively hot reinsurance market. The result is a very lively and good-humoured encounter. Tim and Bob are buzzing and are clearly enjoying the considerable challenge of building out and scaling a global reinsurance broker. This is a task others have tried and failed to do. And if you listen carefully, I think you'll hear the tiniest sense of relief in Tim's voice that much of his early vision has been vindicated. I also think that this episode will give you a lot of insight into what Tim and his team are trying to do that is subtly different from some of Lockton Rees peers. Tim and Bob say that getting the people, the culture and capabilities right is the key. And if you do that, the revenue and profit will take care of themselves. That's to say that they're just a byproduct and not the goal in itself. Lots of people say these kind of things, but rarely have I met an executive team that really sounds like they mean it. So listen on and see if you hear what I hear. Tim speaks first of the two. Enjoy the podcast. Tim and Bob, welcome back to The Voice of Insurance. Thanks, Mark. It's good to be back with you again. Well, it's already a year, but we haven't had a proper podcast about Lockton Re for about two and a half to three years now, Tim. So before we set sail on anything else, why don't you give us an update? That's a big percentage of the lifespan of Lockton Re already since we last spoke. So I'm sure Lockton Re has changed hugely since we last spoke. So give us an update. Yeah, we are four years in now to our journey of Lockton Re 2.0. And you know, I think the nice thing about that conversation, Mark, is much of the strategy that we outlined to you three years ago is very similar. You know, we're playing the same game today that we were playing four years ago, or really day one. You know, we had a strategy of how we were hoping to build the business, and I think I'm really pleased to be able to say it has come together very much in the way we anticipated and with a lot of successes. And if I think about the progress we've made as a business broadly. We have expanded dramatically in terms of headcount and people. So, you know, we're 300 plus people now globally. And that obviously wasn't the case when we were together. No, it was probably less than 100. Yeah. I mean, it probably was less than 50 potentially when we last got together. I suppose that's the first thing because you can phone up all your friends, but they might not actually join you. Yeah. So that's the first part of the missions that you've actually got. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) recruiting obviously has always been core to what we are and, and what we continue to be. And I can talk more about that. It's a, it's a really interesting progress in the recruiting cycle with people because there's a very early fork in the road that you find with recruits where they'll say, you mean I can join a business and be part of an entrepreneurial place and build a business with a lot of capital and a lot of flexibility? That sounds spectacular. I'm in. Or the other fork in the road is people say, eh, I don't know, that sounds a little risky. And you know, what's my title? And what do I fall in the hierarchy? And what's so, so that second camp of people, they don't sound like the people you they, want either. Exactly. They, they, they don't come. It's a very early self-selection process. And the people that are excited lean in very quickly. And the people that are timid and don't want to do it lean out, which is fine. You know, we're, well, so, we're yes, good Because it's not for everybody, is it? It's not. No, it's not. I mean, we think about the best employees we have, and I think we view ourselves this way, 
They're very much Swiss army knives. They think about a lot of different tasks and a lot of different capabilities, and they relish that. They like the opportunity to do a bunch of different things. But if you're a 42 regular guy and that's what you want to be, that's not a good fit for us. You need to be able to get things out of horses' hooves. Yeah, that's <laughs> yes, we do. But I think, yes, I, think I just added that too. I think the interesting piece is that compared to two or three years ago, locked and re is tangible. We've got infrastructure, we've got people, we can point to clients, we can point to wins. So the conversations we had with the folks to try and get them to join Locked and Re a couple of years ago was that leap of faith. Oh, come on board. We've got all the ingredients to make a fantastic dinner. Come join the dinner party. You're going to sit in this table. You're going to sit with all these friends. And actually now we can say, hey, we're enjoying the meal. Come have a bite. It's really good. It's delicious. <laughs> and, and just to finish the question, today we're 300 plus people. We're 18 offices. We're very broad in our capability set, both by product and geography. We're in excess of $200 million of revenue. We're profitable as a business. And that line of profit is growing dramatically. So, you know, it's been a fun story. It's been a fun that was journey. Going to be my next question is if you sort of got through that, I suppose there's always anyone's building a business. When I was starting my own business, I was thinking there's got to be a point at which this revenue is going to come in. And for me, obviously, any revenue is almost instant profit effectively because it's effectively my wages and I don't really have any costs. But for you guys, so you've, you've come through that point. So that must have been a good moment. Yeah. I mean, we built a 10-year plan on the very early days of this business. And we always had targeted last year as our first year of making a profit. Because as you know, it's a big lift to build a reinsurance broker. You know, when you think of the costs associated with people well, and technology- you know, I can see the more other attempts, which were within public organizations, so we could scrutinize some of those numbers, even though it's quite hard to do so, but we did. They didn't work. Yeah. And so that's a very good moment to have come through. Yeah, yeah. So, so last year was our target. We met that target and then some in terms of the profit in the business. And, and now it becomes a, just an item of scale. You know, we just continue to do the things that we've already been doing. We're not really deviating from our strategy, as I said before. It's really just continuing to do more of the same and get deeper where we can get deeper and continue to add talent. And the pursuit has been fun. It's been very productive. And we're just as energized now as we were from day one. When we first spoke, you were talking about that great commitment you have from the Lockton family, but I suppose it must be a relief at some point where you're not asking for contributions. You're making your contribution when you come to the budget yeah. meetings. They've been amazing partners to us in so many ways. I'd like to think that they would be as amazing if we weren't meeting our targets, but it's a really nice situation not to test. You know, we've, we've <laughs> been able to be ahead of all of the goals that we've set collectively. They're as supportive today as they were from day one. And they really have aspirations for us to continue to accelerate and grow. So yeah, it's, it's really worked well. Any new platforms, new lines, new things we should be looking out for? New offices, that sort of thing? You know, I would say incrementally. Our three-year journey has really been about building both in, by geography and product line. The impediment for us is almost always the same. It's finding the right leadership and teams to do it. So we're selective about who we're going to go hire and how well they fit. I mean, one of the things you won't see us do is a big team lift. Some of our competitors are doing it, and God bless them. I mean, they're following their strategies, but we're going to follow ours. And we just don't believe you can control culture if you hire 25 or 30 people at a clip, right? We like to go person yeah, they, by they person. They probably end up being like a mini corporation within your corporation. Yeah, I think point. so, right? I mean, we're just so protective of culture that that's not going to be a good fit for us. When we can find the right leaders to lead a business we have aspirations to be in, we'll go. I think we filled most of those chairs. Last year, just as some illustration, we hired a great team down in Latin America. So Miami-based team to chase Latin American business. Pat Anderson and Tom Cunningham joined us to lead that endeavor. We've really relaunched, and Bob can talk more about it, a capital markets business. So adding a lot of resource and capability there. We've added a life accident and health business in the United States. 
where we find good businesses we want to be in and we can find the right leaders, we'll do it. I think that'll slow a little bit because we've got most of the seats filled, to be honest, that we want to be in. And we'll just go deeper. Right now, it's just a function of adding talent everywhere we can find them. And we're constantly evaluating strategic initiatives and whether they're creative to the business. And the big piece is just finding that specific talent to lead the initiative and then finding the talent to support that. And obviously, we've had a pretty good market. Has that been a help or a hindrance? People say it should be a help, but of course, sometimes it doesn't necessarily mean it is a help. And also, it doesn't necessarily mean that your revenue is going to go up because the spend is often the same, but it's just spent in different ways. How has it been having a reset of this reinsurance market since we last spoke? We've completely reset the market. As a new kid on the block, has it helped? If you're particularly, if you can come in at slightly different angles and produce slightly different access, different pockets of capital, that kind of thing? Absolutely, it does. I mean, it's hard to make headroads and win new business when the market's off 10 or 15 and you're kind of rolling over a renewal, right? I mean, that's, it's, it's hard to differentiate yourself. I think- I suppose if you come in minus 20, yes. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but I mean, these markets, and it's really pretty consistent across the reinsurance space, nothing's all that easy these days, right? And I think you need to be prepared. You need to be thoughtful. You need to explore alternatives. You need to have the appropriate analytical firepower. All those things have to be part of your offering for you to be successful. But if you do have them, then you absolutely have a seat at the table and you got a great opportunity to go and show clients what you can do. So we found our production activity has certainly accelerated. Some of that's just scale, right? We're a bigger business, so we see more. But much of it is, I think, some market dislocation and some of it is some dissatisfaction with some incumbents. There was a pre-Monty conference I went to earlier in the week and yeah, a few of the speakers there were saying, you know, that some of those old relationships, you've got a panel of reinsurers and you segment them into being, some of these are the transactional guys, and I know I need a few of them, and I've got my relationship people, and I need the transactional people partly to keep the relationship people honest. But last year, I discovered that some of the people I thought were my relationship people who'd been on my program for 20 years, and we've been having nice lunches down at Monte Carlo for the last 20 years, turn out they were withholding their quote until the 31st of December, and they weren't my friend after all. They suddenly became more transactional than anybody I've ever known. So there's a certain amount of resentment there. Does, is that helpful for you guys? One, they might blame the incumbent reinsurance broker for that situation. The broker's always going to be in the middle and probably would get blamed whenever something goes wrong. And then perhaps did some of those incumbent reinsurance brokers not do the job of preparing the ground well enough? Yeah, we uh, absolutely feel that way. You know, we can point back to the run-up to 1-1 last year where we felt some of the big broking houses and the individual teams within some of the big broking houses maybe weren't giving their clients the best advice and that opened the door for us to engage in deeper, more meaningful conversations. But also, Mark, you know, if you look at the backdrop of what's happened over the last two or three years, a lot of the management teams have changed not only on the reinsurance side, but also the insurance side full-scale movements of the C-suite and the new folks coming in, they're not going to be as focused on the old relationships and they're going to want some results. You can say, look at the numbers. I want someone with some solutions here. And if you've got the tools to do that job, which you're saying you definitely have, and you've got a fresh attitude and obviously you're hungrier, yeah. then that's got to be good. Right? Yeah. We've built a lot of our business, both from the staffing levels to the technology. We want to be sure that every renewal, we think about it as an RFP against ourselves. So we're constantly trying to stress the status quo to say, does this structure feel right? Let's look at seven, eight, 10 options and make sure, right? And, and again, you've, you've heard us talk about Sage as the tool we built internally that does our stochastic modeling. That tool is built to be very user-friendly for all of our broking teams. So we can spin through a lot of structures very quickly and we hold ourselves accountable to do that, right? We want to be sure that clients don't feel like I was kind of given only option A and when reinsurers didn't react well to it, I'm stuck, right? That's a path we definitely don't want to find ourselves in. And also, I think we benefited from the fact that 
where we set up our hubs are where the number of the reinsurers are. So we're embedded in, in those marketplaces. We have flags down in Zurich, in Bermuda, in London, in New York. And we're encouraging our brokers in those locales to get in the reinsurer's offices and understand where the market's going and, and what they're looking for. So we can feed that credible information, not just back through the locked in re system, but allowing our locked in re brokers to get out there and give that feedback to clients and prospects. So what is happening in the market at the moment? And it seems to have got a much more stable renewal in prospect, but within stability, there's always a huge amount of subtlety. Reinsurers generally seem very happy with what they've got in property, but they seem less happy or less certain that, one, they're not sure what they've quite got in casualty re and whether they're happy with it or not. Is that the right way of describing it? And does that mean that casualty re's got a bit more resetting to do before everyone gets really comfortable with it? Sorry to interrupt in mid-flow, but this is just a reminder that you could be advertising right here, right now, and getting your message directly into the ear of key decision makers in the insurance industry. And you'll be doing it while they're absolutely in listening mode. The Voice of Insurance has just run through 300,000 downloads. If each of those had had a 60-second ad in them, that would make 83 hours of talking to the industry for a fraction of the cost of alternative media. The podcast is the medium of the future, and so is audio advertising. Contact me on mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com and I'll do everything I can to get you started. I don't know that I'd use the phrase happy with any well, line of this on both act, levels, I know they, right? They pretend not to be happy, but I mean, they've got to be reasonably happy. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think if you look at the simple fact that reinsurers as a composite have produced some pretty good results through six months, there have been a continued frequency of severity, right? We're still going to book half-year insured losses of an excess of $50 billion. So it's not like the frequency of severity has waned. So I think the number one task that was really the goal of 2023 was to push program attachments up and refine coverage. You can kind of put a tick in the box of the reinsurers. They've executed on that strategy pretty effectively. But we still have seen a lot of large and odd losses. So, you know, there is still a lot going on in the space. I think there's just a lot of noise in the system, frankly, across every line of business. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, I, I think complexity back to where we think our value proposition shines, right? If you have complexity and you have nuances in every market, you need people that have done this before. You need people that are well-tenured, well-experienced, know how to give we clients good guidance. Because you live through an era of inflation. Yeah, yeah right. I you mean, know, you live through cycles. <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it, scar tissue helps. And, and, you know, a lot of us have it. We've done this for a long time. And, and I think our ability to give clients some guidance as a result of that is valuable. But that transference of volatility from the reinsurance community, particularly from a property perspective, yeah. from the reinsurance community to the insurance community is real. And as Tim said, with a 50 billion plus of losses over the first half of the year, those losses are sitting on our client base's balance sheets. So, you know, now it's incumbent upon us as reinsurance professionals to figure out how we find that next product, that next middle ground between our clients and our reinsurers. Seems like a golden era for FAC again. If you've doubled everyone's net retention, suddenly they're looking at their property portfolio and thinking, wow, you know, or any of their limits and thinking, well, I probably should be reducing these original limits. And at the same time, reinsurers are much happier to look at facultative because obviously they can look at an individual risk and actually touch and feel it and rate it accordingly. I was around, you know, in that post-KRW market where facts I need to off. In fact, to, to the extent that as journalists, we started founding different facultative reinsurance magazines and, and things that all did really well. And we were talking about treaty fact and all sorts of clever, you know, sort of incisive instruments invented to help ease some of that pain that is now being heaped upon those students. Do you think facts times come again? 100%. 
it has. I mean, we're, we're seeing a huge demand increase on the facultative side from clients. And for us, we very intentionally built close connectivity between our treaty and facultative teams because we view them as an extension of one another, right? You can have fac on the one hand, you have facoblig, you have semi-automatic fac facilities, and you have full treaty facilities. And making sure that those are all linked together to bring holistic solutions is important. But our fac business has grown really dramatically by both headcount, revenue, really all metrics. And I, and I would say that's true of most of our competitors too. You know, there's just a huge heightened demand for facultative. Yeah, I just imagine. So that's something that when you're looking at your budget for next year, you're saying, right, this is going to be a big focus and an and investment as well. Yep. And a war for talent. I mean, if uh, it's particularly in the US side, a number of domino effects of folks that are building facultative businesses has led to a, a real war for talent. I mean, it's true across most of the reinsurance broker space, but fac particularly acutely this summer. What about capital raising? Obviously, you know, you've got capital markets uh, capabilities. What's your sort of temperature gauge of those investors? It seems to be that they're still kind of folding their arms. Obviously, they're quite pleased that if they're getting a prospective 17.5% return for the first half, they already know, that, of course, that a lot of the real exposure is in the second half. Mm. It must be happier, but not happy enough to be sort of allocating big wedges of capital to our industry just now. Is that the right way of putting it? Yeah, I would say there's a couple different aspects to the capital raising, the ILS world. I'd say number one, the established ILS managers, they're using phrases like our net outflows or our net positions. So there's still redemptions that are happening to the ILS managers, but there's also money coming in. A number of them had increased funds at mid-year compared to where they probably, their funds were down at 1-1. So that seems to be a feast that's still moving. I would say the reinsurers, the traditional reinsurers ability to attract capital has seems to have slowed a bit. Although we can say in, in pockets, you know, there there was one big chunk of money that came into a Bermuda-based reinsurer at 1-1 that was very helpful in placing some reinsurance as well as retro. And then the third piece is the new capital formation, which is, you know, the sexier part of the conversation where uh, there's loads of speculation or there's probably three or four that seem to have the jets on the runway and trying to figure out if they're going to get airborne. At this point, it's difficult to tell whether they're actually going to be in place for 1-1. If we continue this year without significant losses on the reinsurance side, we could see the investor appetite coming back in the first and second quarter of 24. These kind of times, they're a golden era for a certain type of broker. I think that post-KRW time, there was a broker like Benfield, obviously not around anymore. Perhaps a broker you know, you'd be wanting to emulate the success of you know, as a completely independent that was their golden moment, wasn't it? They could access some capital that other people couldn't. And then it was just one of those great differentiators. You think, how do these guys do it? Why do they get this capital? And it seems to be, it's almost exclusive to them. They can go and kind of ration this capital the way they want. Is that the holy grail for you guys? If you could get something that no one else can get? Yeah, maybe. I mean, I'd be interested in Bobby's views on this as well, if he agrees. But you know, I think our role through the years has probably shifted from finding capital to finding product. And, and what I mean by that is if you went back a decade or two ago, the brokers really did spend a lot of time thinking about how to bring new capital to the market. And if you look at historic formations, they were insurance and reinsurance brokers that were at the core of a lot of the class of 93 in Bermuda and the class of 02, et cetera. So many of the reinsurers and the fund managers now are out talking to capital globally week in and week out. They are really the ones that have a pulse on when capital's coming, where it's coming, how much is coming. So I think the role of the broker has probably become less prioritized in that. And our role is how do we take that capital and create product? So to Bob's point, one of the things that I think as an industry we need to spend some time on is 
as reinsurers have pushed property retentions up, our clients are taking a disproportionate amount of lower end and sideways loss activity. We got to find a solution there, right? And so we spend our time thinking about what products can fly there, knowing that if we find it, there's capital to deploy. I suppose some of that sideways has not been the stellar product and had been the softer end of the market. I suppose if you can find one that was going to respond in the right way, you know, for just above average frequency of medium-sized stuff, then presumably that's going to work, isn't it? If the numbers are right. Exactly. I agree with Tim's point. It's nuanced, but it's not, right? There's a nuance there that, yes, we want to see capital come into the industry. It's healthy for the industry, from a product perspective, from a choice perspective as a broker. However, we'd like to see it shepherded in behind the, the established players now and allow that capacity to and capital to have them offer additional products for our client base. Howden and Tiger came together on the reinsurance side of things. How did that change things for you? Did it change the dynamic of that marketplace? It's an interesting one for us. It's probably a question we get asked in almost every meeting we go into. You're a sort of net beneficiary of this. Perhaps that uh, there was a fourth independent and then there's a fifth independent that's out there. And, and did it just put the idea in people's mind that there's not just three reinsurance brokers out there? I would say that has it changed the dynamic? We would say no. What it has done is it's caused some distraction for the executive teams of a couple of our big competitors. But when we look at, is it changing the dynamic? It's certainly not changing our strategy at all. You know, as Tim outlined earlier, you know, we've got a very specific strategy that we're focused on executing. And what Tiger Howden does isn't going to affect the way we're going to move forward. I don't think we ever think about the market as some of our competition has to lose for us to win. You know, it's a growing marketplace. There's plenty of opportunity for a whole host of people to pursue. So while we pay attention to what's going on in the market and with our competition, as Bobby said, we're just executing. We know what we want to be. We know what we have in terms of our capability set, and we're just moving forward with that. So does it cause some turmoil and angst, all of the movements in the marketplace? Sure. And and can we get in the mix at times when some of that turmoil is out there and, and find some opportunities? Yeah, we, we can and we do. But it really strategically doesn't change the direction that we're pushing and it doesn't change the way we think about our opportunities. The Lloyd's H1 results, John Neal said that global insurance penetration is going to double over the next 10 years. I didn't have time to interrogate him and ask him where he got that number from, but that's a good number. And if that's true, then yeah, you're absolutely right. It won't really matter. You just need to do what you're doing because right. if the market's going to double. Absolutely. And coastal <laughs> values are doubling. And you know, yeah. it all is leading to there is more value at risk in our world every day and it's going to need to be protected, right? And so I think our clients have plenty of opportunity to continue to grow and, and reinsurance is going to continue to be a really important tool for them to use. So we don't worry about the opportunity set that's out there in front of us. You don't worry about a waning interest level in, in either what we do or, or the success our clients will have. And if we think about how that is manifesting itself, right, as our client base is certainly looking for more creative, more ingenious ways to hedge themselves, we've been invited to 50 plus RFPs over the last 12 months. So we've been very busy with that work. And when we start to do uh, a little bit of dissecting of the whys and the wherefores and, and the different areas where clients are asking these questions of us and, and asking for the RFPs, it's pretty broad-based. It's number of lines of business. It is pretty spread geographically, whether it's Bermuda, Lloyd's, US, Europe. So clients are looking for solutions for their problems, not only today, but down the road. And that's a big part of the discussion we've been having is, yes, you know, let's talk about hedging ourselves today and protecting ourselves against today's perils and today's issues. But as we move forward with our portfolio, 
What other ideas do you have for us? How can we make this reinsurance protection sustainable over time? Sounds exhausting doing an RFP every week. Yeah. I hope you have a we, big enough hit rate to justify the amount of labor involved in that. You know. We we do, fortunately. I mean, we ruined a lot of summers for uh, for many of our colleagues. <laughs> yeah, which, uh, like, that means you only get two weeks holiday. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it was hard. But you know what? Honestly, it's what we're all here for. So we've actually enjoyed it a lot. And, and Better than not being asked. Yeah, that's right. The alternative is, exactly. is, uh, is depressing. <laughs> Obviously, the big trend over the last seven or eight years of the big three plus has been to start to reintegrate their insurance and reinsurance operations and not really sort of just look at it as bringing risk and capital together. You are part of a very large insurance broking operation. Are you sort of on that same journey in any way? Locks and $3 billion of revenue, which is really impressive. Obviously, you're making your contribution to that, but are you getting more integrated with Lockton itself, with Lockton Insurance? Yeah. I mean, we've always been very close to the insurance business, quite frankly. And I think that plays out in a number of different ways. We educate each other. So we speak all the time at a product level and at a geographic level about what's going on in the market, both reinsurance insights to them and primary insurance movements back to us. So a lot of connectivity there. Yeah. And do you see yourselves in some way as being the product laboratory because we're at the higher end of capital and the more perhaps more creative end of capital, that you could be the manufacturer of products that is then distributed through that fantastic distribution arm that you've got. Absolutely. Take our capital markets teams, right? They spend a lot of time thinking about products that we've already deployed as insurance opportunities back into the retail insurance business. So there's certainly product technologies and other lens that you know we spent and built some really compelling technology that we're rolling back for our insurance colleagues to have access to and utilize. Lockton is a remarkable growth story, right? The business has grown by a billion dollars in revenue over the last 24 months alone. So amazing spike in growth. And that's created a ton of goodwill with really important insurance company clients, right? And we don't leverage that, but there is something to be said for if you have a holistic relationship, if you are a big feeder of growing profitable business into companies there is a great connectivity to a reinsurance conversation, the right? The door's and, open. Yeah, that's right. It's 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 a door opener. We're not pushing it hard, but it's a good starting point, right? There's no arm twisting involved. You just you, yeah. you, you can get an introduction because you already have a good relationship with exactly. the company, right? And and of course we you know we have collective conversations. You know whether it's Monte Carlo next week, whether it's CIAB. You know we'll sit with the leadership of Lockton and clients and prospects, and we'll talk holistically about how can we be most helpful, right? That's that's a really natural I discussion. I had Ross Howard on the show. He said, yeah, that uh, you can get somebody with locked and surname to come and uh, just get on a plane and I'll come do the pitch if you want. Absolutely. Yeah, they're happy to. I mean, it's part of that great partnership, right? They've been so remarkably supportive, not just with financing and funding, but you know, personal time. They'll commit a lot to helping us grow our business. I remember there's a quote from the first podcast I did with you, Tim, was perhaps where I used to work or in the industry, most of us talking about quarters, as in quarters of a year. With these guys, we're talking about quarters of a century, but you're still not even, you're about one eighth of the way through the first quarter of century. Yeah. You know, you know how that's manifested yeah, yeah. itself though. I mean, so certainly that's true that we do, we're allowed to take a very long-term view. I don't know whether I even had this sentiment organized in my mind when we spoke last, but one of the things that pragmatically that's hit us with is in many of our prior lives, the immovable object was quarterly earnings growth. That's what your business rotated around constantly. Just scramble, scramble. Scram yeah. And it meant reforecasting and rebudgeting <laughs> and cutting expenses and that constant activity around that immovable object. What we've been able to do is actually make that the byproduct of the things that we do control and care about every day. So people, first and foremost, hiring, recruiting, training, retaining, 
the capabilities, that's technology and analytics, the value proposition, the culture, those are our primary levers. That's what we worry about every day. And the byproduct of that just happens to be revenue and our bottom line profit. And the beauty is, and I don't think this is any secret, if you do those things right, the revenue takes care of itself, right? We have been more successful under the path that we've pursued, I'm convinced, than had we tried to drive towards this quarter over quarter, you know, incremental growth rate. It's just, we've been able to prioritize- Because obviously you'd be pivoting between whatever's paying the highest price reinsurance this week. Yeah, and then you know, it just it when it forces goes behavior, yeah. which I think is counter to a longer term growth trajectory, right? You focus on things that are the most accretive and most valuable to your business, and you have the flexibility to do that. And, and I know our financial results have been benefited greatly by the ability to do that. We've kind of touched on this, but I think it's a good way of summarizing some of the things that you're trying to encapsulate here. So you're still hiring, you're out there hiring. Some of those people work for larger brokers, some of them work for smaller brokers. Probably say a lot of them work for larger brokers, don't they? Just, that's just the way the world is at the moment. Can you sort of encapsulate what you pitched to them? You've sort of said all of it in preceding this moment, but it'd be a good way of bringing it all together. Yeah. I mean, maybe, do you want to talk about the hires we made that maybe don't get the headlines, Bobby, first? And then I'll, maybe yeah, I'll take the you know, When you were in a bar, some, someone in this sort of, you were having a chat and you've been circling around each other a bit. And then, you know, mm. you finally get to meet them and kind of checking each other out. What do you do to kind of seduce them to come over? <laughs> What's the difference? You know, what, what would be different if you came to Lockton Re? You know, it would be different from where you are now. And So, so one point, it's kind of building on a number of the items that Tim touched on is that in the preparation of Monte Carlo, we're just checking out some of the numbers for, for the group. And one thing that we weren't specifically tracking, but now when you look back, you say, oh, of course, you know, we hired over nine actuaries over the last six months. We've hired another six cap modelers. We've hired 14 new trainees worldwide to come into our graduate trainee program, we've hired 16 apprentices across the group. So they're the ones that don't necessarily end up naturally discussed on a podcast or hits a headline or in one of your challenger uh, publications. But it puts an exclamation point on the fact that we are building an infrastructure and we're focused on building deep benches with strengths, with skill sets that are going to be for the benefit of the client. And I think the answer to your question specifically, Mark, of what is the pitch, it really hasn't changed from day one. You know, we are a very entrepreneurial organization. We've got great aspirations for growth. We've got a parent that is incredibly supportive, both financially and culturally. We're going to build a business that we're going to have a lot of fun doing. We, we care a lot about the people that we add and how additive they are to the broader landscape of what we can do. People will have a lot of flexibility, back to that Swiss Army knife commentary, right? You can do a lot of different things here. You can be a builder. And it is an amazing early fork in the road that you see with the people that you're talking to. There's an immediate lean in, and those are the people that we generally hire, and there's a lean out. And, and we get it. And you know, it, this isn't for everybody, but if people are inclined to try to be a builder, it's been a lot of fun and it's a and great platform. Financially, they can get those rewards because obviously, sometimes with a PE-backed business, it's pretty obvious what the pitch is like, come and join this rocket ship and then we're going to explode into the sky and then you're gonna, we're all going to buy big yachts in right. eight years' time when we, whatever, yeah. when we sell yeah. it to the next person. Presume it's not that, is it? But you not get to share in those rewards financially, I presume. Yeah, no, we've built a really effective model to be able to reward people here that is tied directly to the performance of the business. And- there is no exit for us, right? I mean, what we talk about a lot as a management team is our goals are to hand the next generation of this company a bigger, better business than when we all got here and, and something that has a ton of staying power and is a competitor for the future, right? That's really what we're building towards. And, you know, we don't plan to go anywhere 
this leadership team in the near term, but we don't have a three-year exit, right? We don't have a next PE turn or we're selling to a strategic. That's just not in our mindset, right? And whether you are publicly traded, whether you are private equity owned, you are forced to think about your business in a certain way. It has to impose some short-termism to the way that you build. That's not an indictment of others. It just is a reality. And, and we don't have that. We, we've got amazing flexibility in how we want to build and, and how we need to build. And we've got a shareholder that is, they really do think about quarters of centuries as their timeline. And also, how's your strategy changed since you started? Because obviously, you know, it's a bit like no battle plan survives the first shots of war. It's not exactly how it comes, but attributed to Napoleon, but actually came from somebody else. How has it been? How much have you had to reiterate your plan? Because obviously it's never quite the same as when you imagine what it's going to be when you, when you just, you know, you've got a clean sheet of paper. Yeah. I mean, I would say our tactical moves change. Our strategy really hasn't. I mean, you know, go back to what I was saying before. We've always from day one thought about hire the best people you can possibly find, give them the tools that they need to compete and win and care and nurture culture. Those are our three. So those high level imperatives, they're never going to change the way we think about building this business. And again, if you can get those right, revenue and NOI take care of themselves, right? So that's really continues to be our pursuit. Now, none of those are easy. You've got to make the right decisions about who you recruit and who you bring on. You've got to make the right investments in the technology that you go and embrace and, and try to construct. Culture is a fickle thing, right? You got to work at it every day in the things that we care about and make sure you don't add bad apples to the bunch that start to spoil culture, right? So none of, it's not easy to do. It's pretty easy to say, but that's what we work at. And so far, keeping it simple like that has, has served us really well. So I don't see us deviating from that at all. I just thought that we've had a little bit of acceleration of the plan, if anything, in the iterative movements of it. When I think about talent being available for us to have meaningful discussions and, and actually being able to have them come join us, that moves the plan forward whatever it is, two months, six months, 12 months ahead of time. And again, I'll repeat that it's not just a talent on the broking side. When we can get fantastic talent to help us deepen our bench on the actuarial side or help us improve our sage proprietary model that can help us evaluate structures and, and make that a better tool, we'll take that talent on now and, and use it to move forward. It's a really good point. I mean, one of the things that I do think is lost a little bit in our industry currently is service levels and service standard. You know, to Bob's point, we spend a lot of time and money on the tools that we use behind the scenes for claims and premium processing. We spend a lot of time and money on how we capture quote information, placement information, bound information, with the idea that we're going to serve all that back to serve our clients better. Now, it's not flashy. It's not glittery. It's, it's sort of your foundational items to build the business the right way, but it's important. And even on the hiring side and the staffing side, we're never going to put claims in premium processing folks in some far off locale. That's just not in our DNA. We want them sitting in the offices with our broking teams, able to swivel on a chair and ask, what were you thinking when you put this coverage together so that we can go <laughs> recover the claim, right? We don't want that to have to be a conversation that happens across an ocean. And yes, it might increase margins if you do it, right? But it's not good for clients. And, and we just don't have to have that pressure to do it that way. Yeah, you're reminding me of my early broking career. I think when yes, the claims department asked me, what the hell were we doing with this fireworks liability scheme that we did for Spain you know, with, with no deductibles? <laughs> we, we met with a reinsurer yesterday and, and they made a comment to us saying, you know, let's be brilliant at the basics. We all looked at each other and said, absolutely, that's what we want to do. We want to be brilliant at the basics. Brilliant at the basics, the tougher stuff gets a lot easier. 
I suppose, and you've had that ground floor opportunity to be able to do this because it's hard if you've got a business that's already 70 years old, you're suddenly trying to reverse engineer all this stuff back through your process. It's really difficult. Yeah. I mean, you can't from a technology perspective, you can't from a process perspective. There's so many impediments. We, we use the phrase, as I know you've heard, one of the cores of our value proposition is born digital. And the idea to be able to build new without unpacking old legacy infrastructure has been a godsend. You know, we can do things that we never would have been able to do in prior lives simply because there's just too much there to try to unpack before you can actually build something that's new and compelling. Well, I've run through all my questions. I really enjoyed talking to you. I think next time we're going to have to not talk about what Lockton Re is. We're going to just talk about other stuff. We do like talking about ourselves. <laughs> and there will be, no, because, yeah, because I can tell from this that actually it's not going to change. So if we do it this, you know, this time next year or in two years time or whenever it is, when we get around to doing it again and checking in, we'll have to talk about other things. We'll have to talk about what you're going to do with all this digital stuff and, you know, AI and chat GPT, reinsurance broker, et cetera, all the other things that probably would have happened by then. But until then, good luck with everything and come back on the show soon. We'd love Great. to. Always good to reconnect with you, Mark. Absolutely. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. Really appreciate it. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, don't forget to subscribe or leave a like or a review or recommendation on whatever podcast platform you used to access this program. These really help get the word out. Before we go, just a quick reminder that advertising slots are available here and in other places in the Voice of Insurance podcasts. Podcasting is the fastest growing medium and attracts a high quality audience of key decision makers. It's also an intimate medium where you, the listener, are right in the room with me and the interview subjects. Needless to say, that means it's a great way of getting your message out directly to an audience because you know you've got their full attention. It's also very cost-effective. So get in touch with Mark at thevoiceofinsurance.com to find out how you could be speaking directly to the industry. The Voice of Insurance is produced in association with Advantage Go. Release your underwriters to underwrite with Advantage Go's underwriting platform. Voice of Insurance is produced by me, Mark Gagan. Music was written by Anna Gagan and produced by Carlos Gagan. Check out more podcasts and written comment pieces at www.thevoiceofinsurance.com. <laughs>